0: Follow the show on Twitter at Best Song Podcast, where you can participate in polls, talk about your favorite movie songs, and dive deeper into the rich history of movie music. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff
1: Cummings. Welcome back to the show. We're celebrating the 20th year of the Academy Award for Best Original Song on this episode, and what a journey the category has taken in its first two decades. So when it was first handed out, you'll remember that it wasn't entirely certain that the award would last. But once Hollywood began to recruit the best songwriters from Tin Pan Alley, the quality of the songs improved, and they became more than a break in the plot to allow the actors to sing and dance. Irving Berlin, Jerome Kern, Harry Warren, and Leo Robin were just a few of the songwriters who found lots of success in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s, winning Oscars for hit songs that have since become classics. As we turn the page to another decade of this award, you'll hear some new names alongside the veteran songwriters, all trying to turn out tunes that reflected the times they lived in. Showing that the Academy was fully invested in making movie music a major part of preserving and advancing film, two-time Oscar-winning composer and arranger and MGM musical director, Johnny Green, had been picked as one of two Academy vice presidents. That ensured that the music branch would have a very strong voice as the Academy made major decisions. As far as 1953 goes, the big stories dealt with the change of international heads of state. Dwight D. Eisenhower became the 34th president of the United States on January 20th. On March 1st, Russia's Joseph Stalin suffered a massive cerebral hemorrhage and died four days later to be succeeded by Georgi Malenkov as the next premier of Russia. And Great Britain coronated Elizabeth II as the new queen that June, a title she held until 2022. And in medical news, Jonas Salk announced that he had created a vaccine for polio, which helped to nearly eradicate the disease by the early 1990s. The ongoing war between television and movies dominated headlines in the trade papers in 1953. There was no doubt that TV was sticking around, and some actors who were unable to find success in the movies became megastars on the smaller screen. I Love Lucy was the most popular show at the time, and in 1953, 71% of all television sets were tuned in to watch Lucy Ricardo give birth to a baby. No other television program, either live or taped, has grabbed that much of an audience percentage in the 70 years since. Movie studios were still reeling from the aftershocks of losing the antitrust lawsuit that essentially kept them from owning the theaters that showed their movies. That took a large chunk of revenue out of their coffers, which meant fewer movies made each year. Musicals were often the most expensive movies to make and the hardest to earn a profit, so they were often the last to get the go-ahead from executives to start production. As we continue to learn more about the Oscar-nominated songs, you're going to find that fewer and fewer of them are coming from musicals. MGM apparently didn't get that memo, cranking out quality musicals, both original and adapted from Broadway, for more than 10 years. Looking at the Oscar-nominated songs of 1953, four of them came from musicals, so someone must not have alerted those filmmakers that musicals were going out of style. The other one was a dramatic comedy that had a song written specifically for it, hoping to find the same success as High Noon as the title song. Let's start with those songs coming from musicals, three of which have a female in the title. The first one is Small Town Girl, starring Jane Powell as a definitely grown-up woman in Connecticut, with one of my favorite sidekick actors, S. Z. Sakal, appearing as a shop owner trying to set up his single son. Sakal has popped up in about a dozen or so films featuring Academy Award-nominated songs. He hasn't sung in any of them, nor does he have anything to do with many of the song performances, but he gives us a good laugh when no one is singing. The Hungarian-born Sakal is one of the few bright spots in Small Town Girl, featuring a flimsy plot and a silly one with an even sillier ending we could see coming 20 minutes into the movie. No wonder the movie made only $2 million, which was defined as a flop considering that it couldn't make back its money. In order to make the film a little more attractive, Nat King Cole's name was put on the movie poster, even though he appears for less than three minutes to sing the nominated song, My Flaming Heart. Cole is appearing at a New York City nightclub where the two leads, Jane Powell's Small Town Girl and Farley Granger's Playboy, are watching him perform. Why these two are in New York is kind of convoluted, but it's where Nat King Cole's song brings the romantic feelings that these two have to the surface. You'll hear some bongos played in the song, which is an odd choice given the tone of the song and the fact that there is no tropical feel to the environment.
2: This could be the end of the star Burn low, my flaming heart Burn away the past, I want this love to last And it won't if you burn too fast I'm here with the one I used to dream of And more than she knows I want her so Burn bright my flaming heart I need your light But when I hold My flaming heart Burns slow I'm here With the one I used to dream
3: of
2: And more her soul burn bright my flaming heart i need your light but when i hold her tight my flame. My flaming high slow.
1: This was Nat King Cole's third credited appearance on film, even though he had appeared as a musician in other movies dating back to 1941. Nicholas Brodsky, who started his Hollywood career writing two Oscar nominated songs for opera singer Mario Lanza, had to shift his style for Cole's more low key performance. Leo Robbins' lyrics are fairly standard for a love song, and didn't require him to be as inventive with the words as he was with Zing a Little Zong the year before. But with Nat King Cole handling them, the lyrics are slightly elevated, mentioning the singer's desire for his heart to burn bright and slow while he pines for the one he loves. Naturally, the song was released commercially, and like Cole's big hit Mona Lisa a couple of years ago, My Flaming Heart was released as a B-side record with Cole Porter's I Am In Love, not to be confused with the Oscar-nominated Am I In Love that was written last year. The next two musicals that featured nominated songs in 1953 are named after specific women. Miss Sadie Thompson was not a real person, but invented in a 1921 short story by W. Somerset Maugham. Miss Sadie Thompson was the fourth film version of the story, with Gloria Swanson and Joan Crawford playing Sadie Thompson, as well as Francine Everett in an all-black film loosely based on Maugham's story. Rita Hayworth took on Sadie Thompson in 1953, and the movie was advertised heavily as part of the new trend of releasing movies in 3D. The lush Hawaiian locations are what Columbia Pictures was trying to wow the crowd with, and some critics were impressed with it because it didn't have, quote, objects or people hurtling at the audience, just Hayworth's face filling the screen seemingly inches from the viewer. Some even said that Hayworth, who was never nominated for an Oscar, gave the best acting performance of her career in Miss Sadie Thompson as a singer during World War II who riles up the soldiers on Hawaii during a layover. The short story by Mom was more risqué than the 1953 film, in which the worst the film implies is that Sadie has a shady past, but doesn't allow Hayworth to pour on the sexuality to fit the character. There is a rape scene between Hayworth and newly minted Oscar winner Jose Ferrer, but the film, of course, only implies it. That sensuality was on display in a lengthy sequence at a bar where Sadie dances with dozens of drunk Marines, then shakes her stuff while singing The Heat Is On. The nominated Sadie Thompson song, also known as Pacific Blues, comes after that party when Hayworth is lying in her hotel room bed and entertaining four soldiers. No, not that way. They're not in the bed with her. She puts on a record and begins singing with one of the men who's playing the harmonica. It's a typical blues song, slow and dripping with hot sweat. But the performance doesn't match Sadie's mood. Before, during, and after the song, Sadie's very happy to be on this hot and rainy island.
4: The feeling you get from real bad news I wanna hear bells, I wanna see trains I get in this mood whenever it rains I'm getting the blues night You think of the times You ain't done right To add to the fact you're feeling so bad, the cry of the birds keeps driving you mad Out of the blues You lie awake and how you wish that it was moaning And then you smoke a hundred cigarettes or more That devil rain continues pounding on your window And the tropic winds keep howling at your door Regardless of all the rain and mud, the feel of the place gets in your blood. But deep in the night there comes unawares the terrible thought that nobody cares. You're back with the blues. Even more specific, you've got what they call the blue, Pacific blue.
1: That's longtime uncredited singer Joanne Greer dubbing for Rita Hayworth, the second time she's done it in two years. Greer released a commercial recording of the song that didn't chart well. But it's likely that Hayworth's physical performance of the song impressed Academy voters enough to give it a nomination. The song gave lyricist Ned Washington his eighth nomination, while composer Lester Lee scored his first and only nomination. After spending about 15 years working on Broadway, Lee moved to Hollywood in 1943, writing songs with another B level songwriter, Jerry Seeland. When Seeland moved to television in 1953, Lee looked elsewhere for a lyricist for his assignment writing songs for Miss Sadie Thompson. Working with Ned Washington definitely helped Lee's exposure, giving him the recognition of his peers for the first time in a career lasting nearly 20 years. Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster were not first-time Oscar nominees, but it's been about 10 years since they were part of Oscar history. They didn't go anywhere in that time, They just didn't have songs that were considered good enough to be nominated for an Academy Award. The last time Sammy Fain was nominated was in 1937 for That Old Feeling, and Webster's last nomination came in 1944 for the blackface song Remember Me to Carolina. Getting a nomination in the 1930s and mid-1940s was tough, with studios only getting one automatic nomination, and most of the movies Fain and Webster worked on did not produce top-tier songs. Plus, they were freelance songwriters who had to fight for jobs harder than those who were under studio contracts. Usually, the songs they wrote with others in that time were what were called trunk songs, meaning they had been written months or years earlier, then sold to a Hollywood studio who wanted them for their movies. For example, a song was needed for Gene Autry's 1941 film The Singing Hill, and Fane had a song he wrote with Irving Cahal called Let a Smile Be Your Umbrella, that they sold to Republic Pictures. Fane did write a few complete movie musicals, including 1946's Two Sisters from Boston, but none of the movies or the songs gained much popularity. Sammy Fain was given the assignment of writing songs for Disney's Alice in Wonderland in 1951 and Peter Pan in 1953, but they were two of a small number of Disney animated movies that did not get any recognition by the Academy for the music. Webster had a better chance at getting a nomination, writing some songs for two of Mario Lanza's movies in the early 1950s. But no luck there, and Webster just kept plugging away until he was introduced to Sammy Fain for the assignment to write songs for the musical film about gun-toting Calamity Jane. Fain and Webster had never worked together before Calamity Jane, but it's obvious they really needed to have met much earlier. Their collaboration shows an understanding of each other's strengths to create a song score that imitated what Irving Berlin did for Annie Oakley and what Rodgers and Hammerstein did for Oklahoma. For an example, I Could Do Without You in Calamity Jane was an obvious callback to Berlin's Anything You Can Do in Annie Get Your Gun. And The Windy City was similar to Kansas City from Oklahoma. And just because it's an Oscar-winning song, on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe is imitated in the song The Deadwood Stage when it arrives in town. Despite all that, Fane and Webster had some songs that had inspiration solely from Doris Day and the Calamity Jane script. Secret Love is one of those songs. There's a love story involving Jane, Wild Bill Hickok, and an army lieutenant, as well as a singer named Katie who's brought to town to entertain the locals. Jane is kind of in love with the lieutenant, and Wild Bill loves Katie. But after the lieutenant kisses Katie, Jane and Bill realize they're in love with each other and kiss. The next day, Jane is ready to sing about this new love that she has, one that had been hiding in the depths of her heart unbeknownst to her. That's obvious from her performance of I Can Do Without You with Wild Bill earlier in the film but her heart is now ready to show her that she really does love Bill, and it's ready to be proclaimed from the highest hills. And for the first time in the movie, Doris Day sings like the Doris Day we know and love, smooth as silk instead of raspy like she has prairie dust in her throat. You'll hear a clip-clop in the second half of the song to accompany the gallop of the hooves of the horse that she's riding into town as she continues singing.
5: The secret love that lived within the heart of me all too soon my secret love became impatient to be free So I told the friendly star The way that dreamers often do Just how wonderful you are And why I'm so in love with you
1: There's a reprise of the song at the end after she marries Wild Bill. And yep, she's singing about her love from the Highest Hills. Doris Day probably sang about the success of Secret Love from the Highest Hills after it became a number one hit all over the world. The recording of the song reportedly was done on the first and only take with an orchestra and Doris Day together in the Warner Brothers recording studio. It first hit number one in February 1954 the same time that the song was nominated for an Academy Award. Doris Day was the number one female singer of 1953, but she couldn't match the star power of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, who had been in the top two of the top movie stars since 1951. In 1953, Gary Cooper knocked the comedy pair off the top spot, thanks in no small part to Cooper's Oscar win in High Noon in March 1953. But in August 1953, Martin and Lewis had their appearances on the Colgate Comedy Hour on TV and the release of their 10th movie together, called The Caddy. It's not a great movie, but it should be celebrated as introducing what would become one of Dean Martin's signature songs, That's Amore. Martin and Lewis had a great songwriting team with them for their first two movies, namely Ray Evans and Jay Livingston. But none of those songs caught the attention of the Academy's music branch, including I'll Always Love You from my friend Irma Goes West in 1950.
6: Day after day, I'll always love you. we just the same, I'll always love you. Dear one, your nearness is my treasure, dear one, your kiss is rich as wine, and it's mine, yes it's mine, the wonder of you, yours love is Cause I love you To you I give my heart so madly, madly
3: beating With
6: every beat repeating I'll always love you so
1: I play that song because of the interesting flavor composer Jay Livingston brought to it. There's the accordion and the jaunty step to it, which makes it feel very European, even though the characters and the setting in the film are very much American. Dean Martin was born of Italian parents, and if you know anything about the songs that made Dean Martin famous, they have a little Italian flavor to them, or a lot. That's Amore has a lot of Italian flavor in it. Livingston and Evans weren't the writers of That's Amore, though. They were busy writing songs for Bob Hope's movie that year, Here Come the Girls, and for the Rosemary Clooney musical The Stars Are Singing. Harry Warren and Jack Brooks, together as a song-ready duo for the first time, took their place for the caddy. Warren has been nominated a lot on this podcast, winning three Oscars from nine nominations. Brooks was enjoying the start of a contract deal with Paramount Pictures, scoring a nomination for Am I in Love written for Bob Hope, and coming off the Oscar nomination to work with another of Warren's catchy tunes for The Caddy. Jerry Lewis wrote in his autobiography, Dean and Me, that he hired Warren and Brooks to write the songs for The Caddy in the hopes that they could create a big hit for Dean. In the book, he mentions that he added in a $30,000 bonus to incentivize them to give Dean Martin that one song that would do for him what White Christmas did for Bing Crosby. The Caddy is told mostly in flashback, telling the fictional story of what brought these fictional characters together. Martin's character, Joe, returns home to San Francisco to find Lewis's character, Harvey, sleeping in his bed and engaged to be married to his sister. To celebrate Joe's return, his parents throw a dinner party at the restaurant they run at their boarding house. Joe's mother asks him to sing a song at the party, and he obliges with the accompaniment of an accordion player, a violinist, and a guitar player. Harvey joins in after a couple of verses, asking through song if some of the things he does could still be called love, like kissing your girlfriend with garlic breath. And note that this is a love song, but at this point of the film, Joe is not romantically involved with anyone. He's singing this love song at the request of his mother, and not to any particular person. When Joe invites the entire party to sing along, I'm sure several moviegoers felt the urge to do so as well. And you shouldn't be shy about doing it yourself.
4: Joe, like old time, you sing a song for Mama, oh, see? Oh, no,
1: Mom, not in front of all oh. these people. Joe, you
6: sing it for Mama. <laughs> in Napoli, where love is king, When boy meets girl, here's what they sing. When the moon hits your eye Like a big pizza pie That's amore When the world seems to shine Like you've had too much wine That's amore Bells will ring Ting-a-ling-a-ling ling a ling And you'll sing Vita Bella Bravo, John! Hearts will play tippy tippy tay, tippy tay, like a gay dot and a love. luggy fella. When the stars make you drool, just like Master Basil at When you dance down the street with a cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream. But you know, you're not dreaming, Signora. Mama! Excuse me, but you see back in old Napoli, that's a model. If you still
7: kiss your girl after garlic
6: and oil, that's a moray? That's a moray. If you call her
7: your pet, though she's shaped like spaghetti,
6: that's amore, bells will ring Ding-a-ling-a-ling, ding a ling And you'll sing it the bella be ta be ta be ta Hearts will fly
7: Dippy-dippy-day,
6: dippy-dippy-day Like a guitar and bella Piratella When the stars make you drool Just like a pasta, pasta, ulla. That's amore That's amore when you dance down the street with the cloud at your feet, you're in love.
3: You're in love.
6: When you walk in a dream, but you know, you're not
3: dreaming.
6: And <clears> you're <throat> me, but you see back you. Back Napoli. That's everybody sing when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie that's amore
3: that's amore
6: when the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine that's amore that's amore when you are in a dream but you know you're not dreaming signore, get it, go. Prendilo. Excuse me, but you see back in old Napoli. Signore, that's Joe! Joe!
1: Joe does fall in love with Donna Reed later in the movie, and he sings a love song called You're the Right One.
6: You're the right one Yes, the right one I have never been so sure Of anyone before You're the first time And the last time You're the one time there'll be no more you're the star that always seems so far but darling here you are for all the world to see so Hey you love me oh, I know that you're the right one
1: for me As this love song goes, it doesn't stand out as much as That's Amore. And I expected Joe to sing a version of That's Amore to Reed's character but he goes for the conventional declaration of love. On August 13, 1953, Dean Martin released That's Amore with You're the Right One as the B-side, and both became big hits. You're the Right One got as high as number two on the Billboard charts. That's Amore was one of the biggest songs of 1953 and 1954, also getting as high as number two on the sales charts and remaining in the top ten for more than 20 weeks all the way through to the Oscar nomination's announcement in February 1954. Jerry Lewis's insistence that Dean Martin get a big record out of his work on The Caddy paid off. Jerry Lewis spoke more about his influence in bringing Nata to the movie in a 2016 interview with Ben Mankiewicz.
7: I had to give him some action that did not include me. That would be big? Yeah. The song hit. Yeah, hard. It hit hard because I think he made seven or eight million dollars on the on the on, on the song. Because he had his record company, and this was wonderful, you know. And he would come to me and say, "Is it okay?" Dean would come to you and ask if it was is, okay. Is it okay that the song is doing so well? <laughs> I said, they're mentioning me every time they mention you. What the hell are you worried about? I said, you've got to do that stuff good because you, you, our reputation depends on it. <laughs> so you knew he needed something like that. Something. You, yeah. yeah, something. To, because recording was very huge for Dean then yeah. in, in 1950. Very important. And he was doing some songs that worked very well for him but nothing like Amore.
1: Our last nominated song does not come from a musical, but from the barrier-breaking comedy The Moon is Blue. It's based on a 1951 play that dared to use the taboo words virgin and pregnant at a time when censors were easing up a bit on restrictions in movies, but not that much. Some filmmakers were willing to make the movie independently if a studio wasn't willing to take the risk. Otto Preminger was one of those people, willing to push the envelope of what was acceptable screen content. The first of many movies in which Preminger would challenge the Motion Picture Association of America's production code was The Moon is Blue, about an actress who deals with a love triangle with an architect and his older neighbor. The sexual proclivities of the characters were seen as somewhat okay on the Broadway stage, but it was not going to be allowed in the heartland. Several cities banned the film, but it was released by United Artists without the Motion Picture Association's seal of approval, the first American film to go into theaters without that. Several cities went to court to uphold their bans over the movie they described as indecent and obscene, and perhaps the press that the film was getting got people to seek it out where they could. The movie does not show nudity or sex, but merely talks and talks and talks about sex. It made $3 million and helped Preminger further his quest to push those movie boundaries. William Holden, who was also starring in the Prison Break movie *Stalag 17 at the same time, showed some great range and also got a boost from this movie. British actor David Niven was the older man seducing the actress in The Moon is Blue, even though he was just eight years older than William Holden, and Maggie McNamara was making her film debut as the virtuous actress Patty after playing the same role in the Broadway production in summer 1952. As for the title song, it's performed during the opening credits and features the Salter Finnegan Orchestra as instrumentalists. Sally Sweetland and the Doodlers are the vocalists, making their film debuts. Sweetland had been heard on screen many times as the singing voice for actress Joan Leslie, but of course never got to be credited for it. The lyrics will mention many things that you'll never see happening, such as taxis and trees, money growing on trees, and a month of Sundays in June. But despite all of these things the singers are observing, having a beautiful lover does exist, one who comes along during the rare blue moon. Money
3: grows on trees The desert starts to freeze Cats converse in perfect pekinese And sometimes
6: a dream like you comes true Now and then when the moon is blue I'm in your spell And folks are
5: talking might as well
6: can't be denied.
5: How can I hide the fact that I go walking
3: with both my feet ten feet above the sidewalk? Now I think I
5: see a taxi up a tree,
3: a lamppost,
5: and a spaniel drinking tea. So tell me that you
3: can see too. Month of Sundays, coming up in June because the moon, is moon
1: Sylvia Fine, the wife of actor Danny Kaye, scored her first Oscar nomination for this song. She had been in line to possibly earn her first Oscar nod the previous year as the songwriter for Kaye's musical Hans Christian Andersen, but Frank Lesser took her place. This is the first movie song that Fine wrote that her husband didn't sing. And I won't make any connection between that and earning an Oscar nomination, but it would appear that branching out to write songs for others could have been a big boon for Fine's career, even though managing her husband's career served her well. The composer of the music for The Moon is Blue was Herschel Burke Gilbert, getting his first Oscar nomination for writing a song after getting a Best Score nomination the year before for The Thief. Gilbert spent the 1940s as a conductor and arranger of other people's movie scores, but got work as a composer beginning with The Jackie Robinson Story in 1950 and the Oscar-nominated The Thief in 1952. His work for The Moon is Blue impressed Otto Preminger so much that he asked Gilbert to orchestrate and arrange the score for the film version of the Broadway musical Carmen Jones, which is going to make Oscar history in 1954 when Dorothy Dandridge becomes the first black woman to earn an Oscar nomination for Best Actress in a Leading Role. The Moon is Blue was the only film to earn an Oscar nomination outside of the original song category in 1953. McNamara was nominated for Best Actress, and the film's editors were recognized as well. Because Academy voters were likely to watch the film to see if McNamara deserved the Oscar, they surely heard the song playing over the opening credits. But was this one-minute song enough to cause the voters to mark that song over the other four that year? The song didn't make a dent on the Billboard charts and likely didn't get much radio play, so it wasn't going to be as prevalent as That's Amore or Secret Love. One song that missed out on an Oscar nomination in 1953 became one of the signature songs of Hollywood, That's Entertainment. It was written for the MGM musical The Bandwagon, starring Fred Astaire as a stage actor whose star is dimming. He is putting his comeback hopes on a big show that will feature dancer Sid Charisse as his leading lady, even though they don't really get along. In order to get Astaire's character interested in the plot of the new show, the director sings, that's entertainment, to show that every genre of the theater, from vaudeville to Shakespeare, all has the same goal
6: everything that happens in life can happen in a show you can make them laugh you can make them cry anything anything can go the clown with his pants falling down or the dance that's a dream of romance or the scene where the villain is mean. That's entertainment.
5: The lights on the lady in tights.
6: Or the bride with the guy on the side. Or the ball where she gives them her all. That's, That's entertainment. entertainment.
5: The plot can be hot simply teeming with sex.
6: A gay divorcee who is after her ex. It could be Oedipus Rex. Where a chap kills his father and causes a lot of bother.
4: The clerk who
6: is thrown out of work. By the boss who is thrown for a loss. By the skirt who is
1: doing him dirt.
3: The world is a stage.
6: The stage is the world of
3: entertainment.
1: The song, written by two-time Academy Award nominee Arthur Schwartz, And lyricist-slash-studio publicist Howard Dietz also plays as the film's finale, when the show is revealed to be a big hit on Broadway. Though the film didn't sell a lot of tickets, MGM had a lot of pride in that entertainment. The Bandwagon was going to be the big studio musical release of 1953 and promoted all the songs as possible nominees, including the big dance dumber Dancing in the Dark. None of them got named as Oscar nominees, likely because none of the songs were really crafted as commercial singles, which was really helping a song's chances in the 1950s if the film itself was not a hit. But that didn't stop MGM from making it the studio's signature song, even naming a film clip anthology movie after the song in the 1970s. The American Film Institute recognized the song's impact on the movie industry, naming it as the 45th best song of the first 100 years of movies in their list, released in 2004. None of the other songs from 1953, including the chart-toppers That's Amore and Secret Love, made it onto the AFI list. Another big musical in 1953 was adapted from the Broadway stage and cemented Marilyn Monroe as one of the screen's sexiest actresses. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was a big hit for Carol Channing on stage, but it was Monroe who made it a movie classic, especially the performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. That song came from the Broadway show, so it wasn't eligible for an Oscar. But it has become an often-imitated scene, from a music video by Madonna in the 1980s to Nicole Kidman in the movie Moulin Rouge in 2001. Hoagy Carmichael and Harold Adamson wrote two songs from the movie that didn't do much and definitely aren't as memorable as Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. If you wanted to get an Oscar nomination for writing original songs from a stage adaptation, those original songs had to be better than or just as good as the adapted songs. Mac David wrote the song I Don't Care If the Sun Don't Shine for the 1950 animated movie Cinderella, but the song wasn't used. Instead of putting it in a trunk for possible use in a future film, David had Patti Page recorded in 1950, where it became a top ten hit for her. Dean Martin also recorded the song in 1950, but it didn't do as well. Martin liked the song so much that he asked to sing it in the movie Scared Stiff in 1953 with Jerry Lewis. He performs it in a nightclub with a group of female dancers.
6: I don't care if the sun don't shine to get my lovin' in evening time When I'm with my baby Well, it's no fun with the sun around But I get going when the sun goes down And I meet my baby That's when we kiss and kiss and kiss And then we kiss some more Who cares how many times we kiss Well, at a time like this Keeps cold But I don't care If the sun don't shine I get my loving In evening time When
3: I'm
6: With my baby I don't care If the sun don't shine I get my loving In evening time When I'm Living it up With my baby Well it's my father The sun around But I keep going When the sun goes down And I I want you to meet Meet my baby That's when we kiss and Kiss and kiss and Then we kiss some more Who cares how many do we times, do we, times do we, we kiss bullet a time, time like this Who keeps going I don't,
3: I don't care, care
6: the sun don't shine
3: I get, get my, my loving in, in the evening, evening time. time When I'm, I'm with, with my,
6: my baby
3: Pretty baby of mine
1: Because the song was recorded in 1950, the rules say that it wasn't eligible for an Academy Award. But the song got a new life in 1994 when it appeared in the Australian comedy The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Patti Page's version was the one that played in that film about three drag queens who drive across the Australian outback, and it has since become a song regularly performed in drag shows. Though the ratings for the Academy Awards telecast on March 24, 1954 were very high, an estimated 43 million, perhaps the numbers would have been boosted if Monroe had performed Diamonds or Girl's Best Friend at the ceremony. In later years, non-nominated songs have been sung at the Academy Awards, so the idea of only singing nominated songs at the show was never a steadfast rule. But back then, the telecast had to end at a certain time so any extra musical performances would have meant fewer speeches for those who won Oscars. Donald O'Connor was once again the host of the show, and doubled as musical performer when he sang The Moon is Blue with actress Misty Gaynor, who was just about to have a breakout hit with the star-studded musical There's No Business Like Show Business, which also featured O'Connor. Dean Martin was the only original performer to sing on the Oscar show, getting loud applause for That's Amore. Doris Day was asked to perform Secret Love at the Academy Awards, and she was so filled with stage fright that she immediately declined. Not in front of those people, she was quoted as saying in her biography written by Gary McGee. The press's response to her refusal to perform at the Oscars caused her to have a bit of a breakdown, and she was bedridden for several weeks. Anne Blythe, who made headlines a couple of months earlier when she left Universal for a long new chapter at MGM, handled the duties of singing Secret Love at the Academy Awards. And since Rita Hayworth was not a singer, and because Hollywood was was not going to reveal the names and faces of the -the behind-the-scenes singers, Connie Russell showed up to sing Blue Pacific Blues instead of Joanne Greer. And it was Margaret Whiting who sang My Flaming Heart on the telecast, not Nat King Cole. Arthur Freed, who was the guiding hand in bringing so many of MGM's nominated songs to the screen and who had earned a Best Song nomination in 1940, presented Oscars to the winners in the music categories. The TV presentation of the two score categories showed what appeared to be reproductions of the sheet music of the various scores. And when it came time to introduce the Best Song Award, the TV audience was greeted with the sheet music covers of each song instead of watching Freed read from notes on the podium. Light applause filled the room when Freed got to Secret Love when reading the nominations, but the mention of That's Amore got even bigger applause. But the crowd reception was not an accurate predictor of the names in the envelope. Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster won their first Oscars as the writers of Secret Love. The applause for the winners was about as polite as what greeted the mention of their song as a nominee. Arthur Freed didn't give Fain or Webster the chance to give an acceptance speech. He got between them, put his arms around their shoulders, and walked them off the stage. Harry Warren and Jack Brooks were probably not too beat up about losing the Oscar. That's Amore was currently all the rage on the radio and raking in a lot of money for the two. But of course, when people think of That's Amore, Dean Martin immediately comes to mind. But I hope you'll remember that these two men had to create the song first. So remember the previous year when Ray Evans and Jay Livingston were upset that Dimitri Tompkins won the Oscar for High Noon, saying that film composers were now taking over songwriting duties and saying that Harry Warren couldn't get a job? Well, Harry Warren was doing pretty well. Just writing that to Moray was probably his biggest hit of his entire career. That's Amore has enjoyed a more robust life after the Oscar loss than Secret Love did after its win. Almost every romantic comedy featuring Italians or just looking for an upbeat love song uses Martin's version of That's Amore. Most famously, it was used in 1987's Moonstruck, where the song had a brief appearance on the Billboard charts. It didn't get to number one, but Dean Martin was likely happy to get a big royalty check for a song he recorded 34 years earlier. Secret Love has enjoyed a second life as a popular song in the gay and lesbian community. Before the Stonewall Riots of 1969, many gays and lesbians were unable to have public relationships, but the fight for equality in the 1970s led to more acceptance for the LGBT community, and they took Secret Love as the song that epitomized their openness. As Out Magazine wrote in 2017, the lines, At last my heart's an open door, and my secret love's no secret anymore, is proclaimed as the moment that expresses the joy of gay liberation better than any song that came before or after it in Hollywood history. I don't think the 20th anniversary of the Academy Award for Best Original Song had a lot of excitement to it, but it did show how far songs have come in 20 years. They are no longer 10-minute song and dance numbers, and they could become very popular with the public now that commercial recordings were almost a given. We've had some big-time superstars performing the nominated songs in 1953, but the star power is going to get bigger in 1954. Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, and Bing Crosby are just three of the performers we are here singing the nominated songs of 1954 on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast and some prominent songwriters will be duking it out for the Oscar statuette from Irving Berlin to Sammy Kahn. We'll see who will earn the 21st Oscar for Best Song on the next episode. Thanks so much for singing along with me on this episode. Let's do it again next time.
0: The Best Song podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.